0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we will be looking at Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through chapter 24 and verse 2. These are the words of God. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. "...that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate." For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Lord our God, we come to your word we come to be fed. We come to be instructed. We come to be convicted. We come to be built up and made glad in your word that we might serve you and be to the praise of your glory. And so we pray for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we spent the last six weeks really laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse because it contains a, uh, both a verbal and a conceptual voc- vocabulary that is steeped in the Old Testament. It is one that is very foreign to us as uh, moderns, it is one that is thoroughly, uh, thoroughly Hebrew, and it's one that we needed to become familiar with so that we could go through the Olivet Discourse without having to stop on virtually every word and then jump back and forth to try to explain it. And when we do that, of course, we really lose the flow of the whole passage. So today we're really coming into it proper. Now, the Olivet Discourse is the last of five major discourses which serve as the pillars upon which Matthew has built his gospel. The Olivet Discourse is the largest of the discourses, larger even than the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew you have these five discourses, five pillars, but the two biggest pillars are the first and the last, the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. The reason why this course Uh, this discourse is called the Olivet Discourse, is because the majority of it occurs on the Mount of Olives, which is across to the east from the temple on the east side of Jerusalem. But it's important that we understand that that is not where the Olivet Discourse begins. It begins in the temple with Jesus teaching the disciples and the multitudes. We often think that the Olivet Discourse begins with Matthew chapter 24. It doesn't. It begins with Matthew chapter 23. We've been in the Olivet Discourse for some time, but we don't normally think of it that way because it's only in the middle of the discourse, at the beginning of chapter 24, that he actually moves to the Mount of Olives. So the Olivet Discourse begins in Matthew 23 with Jesus pronouncing eight woes or curses upon the scribes and Pharisees. These eight woes answer the eight blessings of the Beatitudes that Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mount with. So you see that the Mount, uh, I mean, the Olivet Discourse really answers the Sermon on the Mount. And both of them really reflect very heavily the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, God had the people of Israel stand on two facing mountains and proclaim back and forth the blessings and the curses of the covenant. That's a picture of what the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse do. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount by pronouncing blessings, and blessing is the emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opens the Olivet Discourse by pronouncing curses, and judgment is the theme of the Olivet Discourse. What connects the two together is the theme that Jesus announces in both of them. And that is this, that those who are the blessed are those who place their trust in Him and who keep His words. They will be blessed even though they are going to be severely persecuted for Jesus' sake. So, it's going to look like they're not blessed. It's going to look like they're cursed because they're being persecuted for His name. But it's going to turn out that they are the blessed ones. They are the ones who inherit the new covenant. They are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. They are the ones who inherit the Holy Spirit and eternal life and resurrection from the dead. On the other hand, those who are cursed and come under judgment, both historically in the first century and then finally on the last day, are those who reject Jesus, even though it is going to seem like for several decades, from 30 A.D. up to about 67 A.D., it is going to seem like they are the blessed ones. Life is going to go well for them. Things are going to seem good for them. Whereas the the followers of Jesus, everything's going to seem bad for them. But it's going to turn out in the end that those who have rejected Jesus to hold on to a Christless Judaism are going to end up being cursed. They're going to miss out on all the promises made to Abraham that they have been hoping in for all of these years. So that is the constant theme through both of these discourses. And the pivot point between the two discourses, the pivot point from the Sermon on the Mount to the Olivet Discourse is the way that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, where He refers to two houses, one built on stone and one built on sand, one built on Jesus' words and one built on any other word. And Jesus says that the house that He is building The house built on his word, the new covenant people, the new covenant house, the church, is going to stand through the storm. Notice that in Jesus' parable, the storm comes on both houses. Not just one, it comes on both. And the storm is what shows the difference between the two houses. Because even the house that falls looks good in good weather. It's the storm that reveals the difference. The house that rejects Jesus' word, in this case, Christless Judaism, is going to crash. In the storm. So the first part of the Olivet Discourse takes place in the temple precinct, with Jesus pronouncing woes on the leadership of Israel, who had constantly opposed and rejected him, and who will shortly deliver him up to be crucified. And that's where our summer text picks up. And what we have here is Jesus saying, Indeed, I will send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. That's uh, chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus is saying that despite the fact that the temple establishment and the leaders of Israel and the majority of the people are going to reject and crucify Him, He is going to continue to extend mercy. He is going to continue to extend opportunity for repentance to Jerusalem by sending them His prophets, His wise men, and His scribes, that is, His experts in the Scriptures. And they're going to teach them about Jesus, the risen and reigning Messiah. But he says that although there will be a remnant of Israel who are going to trust in Christ and come to Him, as a whole, Jerusalem is going to commit the final hardening and rejection of Jesus that will be displayed by their scourging and persecuting from city to city, killing and crucifying those whom Jesus will send to the people. That's in verse 34. And we will see the first part of this being played out in the book of Acts. One of the constant themes we see in the book of Acts is many Jews initially receiving with gladness the good news about the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. But there's a stumbling block that comes in. And that stumbling block is that in the New Covenant, you don't have priestly believers and then non-priestly believers. You don't have two different tiers of nearness to God in the people of God. All believers are priestly believers. Jews and Gentiles are alike. There's no distinction. They're all brought in. And as the Jews see Gentiles coming in based solely on faith in Jesus Christ, solely on faith in Jesus Christ, they begin to stumble. And we begin to see this theme of starting with Stephen. There is persecution from the Jews toward the gospel when they realize the full implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's not a Jewish national political military regime. It's not, okay, now you get to be Rome. Now you get to be Babylon. Now you get to be like uh, Alexander the Great. No, 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 no. This is a new. Those kingdoms don't have enough powerful weapons. This is a spiritual kingdom which runs like leaven of, through all peoples, and all peoples are brought in into the kingdom of God based solely on faith in Jesus Christ. And so you see through the book of Acts constantly uh, the Jews becoming sour, the Jews becoming bitter, and they persecute the gospel. They persecute Paul, okay? And uh, so that's the constant theme. So they're going to commit this final hardening. They're going to kill and persecute the ones whom Jesus sends to them. And this final rejection of Jesus and his witnesses will result, it says, in all the righteous blood, beginning with Abel, all the way on down, coming on that generation. For that generation, in killing the Son of God and killing his witnesses, would sum up the spirit of unbelief and rebellion, which had caused the rejection and murder of all the prophets and righteous witnesses of God, beginning all the way back with Abel, the very first martyr. So Jesus says in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her, that's your history. And you're displaying the sin of the human race here. Now you're capstoning it. Now the Son of God has come. How often I wanted to gather your children together. But you're not willing. So see, your house is left to you desolate. It's going to be left to you empty. For I say to you, you will see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that comes from a psalm that is a resurrection psalm. It is a psalm where really it's Christ in the psalm talking about how uh, death is coming upon him. But how God delivers him from death. And he walks before God in the living. And so in the context of that Psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, means blessed are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same Psalm that Jesus quotes and the New Testament quotes very often when it says, uh, the stone which the builders rejected, Lord, the, the, God has made the chief cornerstone. Okay? So this means, you'll see me no more until you embrace me by faith. So what this means is that Jesus, the Lord of the temple, is leaving the temple. And the result is that Israel's house will be left desolate. It will be left vacant and uninhabited by God because the Lord whose house the temple is, is departing. And so the picture we have of God in His house throughout the Old Testament is this. Of course, the building, the physical temple, is a picture of God's house. God's real house is meant to be His people. It was really meant to be the human race, where God's spirit dwells, where His words are spoken, where His character is reflected where His will is done. But provisionally, in the Old Testament, God established this building, the tabernacle, and then the temple, where His Spirit dwells. When God's people sin, because they're really supposed to be the temple of God, it dirties up the house. It makes God's house dirty. And when God's people don't repent of their sins, that the accumulation of dirt and filth begins to build. When they come with true hearts to confess their sins, the house is kept clean. Okay? Everything is picked up and is kept clean. When they don't repent, it begins to build up. And you know what happens to a house that is never cleaned. Eventually, it gets condemned. It is not suitable for habitation. And so God comes to the point after speaking to his people again and again and again about their sins and they won't repent, the house gets too filthy for God to dwell there. He refuses to live there any longer, and he moves out. And then what we see in the way God brings about temporal judgment is that as long as God is dwelling in his house, as long as the glory of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord is in his house, nothing can stand against his house. Nothing can come against his house because God himself will defend it. But when God moves out... There's nothing that can defend God's house. It's empty. It's vacant. He turns it over for condemnation. What do they do to some house that has become so filthy it can't be inhabited and so filthy, really, that it can't be preserved? They bulldoze it. They tear it down. It becomes like a toxic waste dump. And that's exactly what uh, we see in the Old Testament when God has Israel destroyed by the Babylonians. Okay, now, remember all the way back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew because now uh, Matthew is pulling together all kinds of themes and threads that, and echoes that go all the way back to the beginning of his Gospel. We saw in the, in the birth story about Jesus Christ how when the Magi come to visit the newborn king, they've had a star which we saw as really the glory cloud because this is a star that moves before them It's the the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud that appeared to Israel in the Old Testament. This glory cloud brings them to Jerusalem, but then it disappears, and so they end up going to Herod's palace. They don't know where to go. I mean, where's the king going to be found? He's going to be found in the capital city, Jerusalem, and in the palace. But they go there, and they don't find the newborn king. Herod doesn't know where he is, and so forth. Herod wants to kill him. Anyway, after they leave Herod, they're searching to try to find the, the star, the glory cloud, appears to them again and it leads them down the road out from Jerusalem to a tiny little village called Bethlehem. And when the glory cloud gets to Bethlehem, it rests over a particular house. And that happens to be the house where the young child, Jesus, was dwelling. And we saw, what was God signifying by this? Well, it's signifying, I mean, think about this. Here's the glory cloud of God bringing the Magi, which is a picture of the Gentiles coming to Christ. He brings these Gentile rulers. He brings them all the way to Jerusalem. And that's where you think the glory of God would be leading them to this new king. But that's not where the glory of God goes. He leads them out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, to this house, in this little village where Jesus is. Well, what God is signifying is that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is where the presence of God dwells. Jesus is where the glory of God dwells. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is where His glory dwells. Jesus takes the place and fulfills everything that the temple symbolized. Jesus is where God and man meet. Jesus is where God and sinners meet. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the new man. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the God-man. He is the center of all creation. He is the center of both heaven and earth. And so when you get into these uh, astrological type discussions about, oh, well, now we know that the earth is not the center of the universe. We know that actually the sun is the center of our solar system. It's like all of that's wrong. Jesus is the center of heaven and earth. Everything revolves around Jesus. And so now in our text, Jesus, who is God, in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as it tells us in Colossians 2.9, Jesus, the glory of God, is vacating the temple. And He's leaving it desolate. And the result is that all the magnificence of the temple will be destroyed. All of its stones are going to be torn down completely. Matthew 24, verse 2. Now, Luke gives us some extra details about what will happen. And the reason why I turn to Luke here is because Matthew is writing to a primarily Hebrew audience. And so he takes for granted a huge knowledge of the Old Testament. Luke is writing mostly to the Gentile converts that Paul has made on his missionary journeys. And while he takes pains to teach Gentiles about the Jewish heritage that they're now part of, he doesn't use as much Hebrew Uh, mechanisms and symbolisms and so forth as Matthew does. He'll speak more in straightforward language. And so this is what it says in Luke chapter 19. This is what Jesus says. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. They will surround you and close you in on every side. And they will level you, you and your children within you, to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Jesus makes it very clear in Luke that what he's talking about is a military siege, this time by the Romans. Now, as these Jewish disciples, which all 12 disciples, the the main disciples were, as they heard all of this, one of the things that would have struck them is that all of this has happened before in Israel's history. Because this is the exact scenario that plays out in a preliminary way in the days of Ezekiel, when the Babylonian army destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 605 B.C. In Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, and, and, and Chris uh, gave us the reading from that section this morning, in Ezekiel 8 through 11, Ezekiel is given a vision of what would lead to the military siege of Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. In this vision... Ezekiel is taken up by the Spirit, and he is taken to the temple and brought inside the temple. And in the temple, he sees all kinds of unclean things all over the walls and so forth. And that's a picture of the sins of God's people dirtying up God's house. And so he sees all this defilement in God's house. And as the vision goes along, Ezekiel sees God rise up on his throne. This is the chariots, the wheels within wheels. The cherubim lift up the throne of God... And God moves out of the temple. And Ezekiel watches the glory cloud of the Lord depart the temple and make his way on the mount on the east side of the city. Okay, Now I ask you, what is the mount east of the temple on the east side of Jerusalem? It is the Mount of Olives. That's where Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord move out of the temple and go to. And all along the way, Ezekiel is being instructed, about this military siege and judgment that is going to be coming upon Jerusalem. And God promises, though, that He's going to return His people from exile. He promises that He's going to give them a new spirit and a new heart. And what is that? That's the language, of course, of the new covenant. So, now in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has exposed all the sins of God's people, and especially of the leadership, which is dirtying and defiling God's house, And Jesus, who is the glory of God, departs from the temple, and now he's going to go up on the Mount of Olives, and there he's going to explain in detail the judgment and destruction that is coming. Jesus is reenacting exactly the events of Israel. Now, that, I mean, of Ezekiel. He's reenacting those exact events. Now, if you really know your Old Testament, that's going to jump out to you. But of course, we don't really know our Old Testaments, and it doesn't jump out to us, and we start making up all kinds of interpretations to try to explain this kind of passage. Jerusalem has rejected Jesus, the true temple, the true presence and house of God, and instead they have clung to a building which has been provisional. It has symbolized the house of God. It is a building that is now defiled by the hardness and the rebellion of God's people because it has become no longer a picture of God and His mercy and grace and His people's uh, faithfulness to Him. It has become now a national symbol, a national Jewish, Jewish first, Jewish nationalism, military, political, and so forth symbol. And now Jesus is moving out and judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem. Now that is what the Olivet Discourse is all about. It is not about events that will occur in the 20th century. It is not about what all the predictions of the 1960s through the 1990s have said. Nor is it about events in the 21st century, because all of those 20th century predictions about The return of Jesus and all this kind of stuff have been false, of course, and now they have all been revised to apply to the 21st century. But it's not about that either. This is talking about events that would occur in the 1st century during that generation. So Jesus says in verse 36 of chapter 23... All these things will come upon this generation, and Jesus keeps harping on that. He will say it again in Matthew 24, 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So well, that's what he's talking about. Now, as we conclude today, and we, we want to meditate on the meaning of this passage for us, what it means for us today, and how we apply it today, Again, I want to take you back to the very opening of Matthew's gospel, to the very opening words. The very opening words are the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1. Now, in some of your translations, it'll say the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's not what the Greek says. It says the book of the generations, the Biblos Genesia, the book of generations of Jesus Christ. And that's like, ho hum, so what to us? That was a bombshell in the first century because it is an exact quote from the Septuagint from Genesis, the book of the generations. Now, here's what's so significant about it. You have lots of genealogies in Genesis. You have lots of genealogies in the Old Testament. But there's only two book of generations, one for Adam and one for the heavens and the earth. You see, a book of generations, unlike a genealogy, a book of generations applies only to primogenitors. First fathers, those created directly from the hand of God. First fathers. And books of generations don't list ancestors. It lists descendants. And so you have only two, Adam and the heavens and the earth. And so when Matthew opens up by saying the Biblos Genesios, the book of generations of Jesus Christ, I mean, that's like earth-shaking. This is now a third Biblos Genesios. What he is saying is this, Jesus Christ is a new Adam. He is the father of a new human race. Jesus Christ is the beginner of a new heaven and a new earth. He is the inaugurator of a new creation. Because remember, Adam and the first creation are connected. If Adam is blessed, the whole creation is blessed. If Adam falls and comes under a curse, the whole creation comes under a curse. So, Matthew begins by stating the conclusion. Jesus has made everything new. Everything. Nothing will ever be the same again. That's the bombshell that Matthew opens up with. Now, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is preparing for his death and resurrection, by which he will become the new Adam, and he will bring about a new creation. He's going to bring about a new human race born of the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring about a new creation, that is, a new heavens and a new earth, transformed by the Spirit. So he's closing out the old human race and the old creation. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew 23:35 that the blood coming on that generation is not just the righteous blood shed from the beginning of Israel until that time. It's the righteous blood going all the way back to Abel, the very first martyr. You see, he's not just closing out a history of Israel. He's closing out the history, the book of the generations of Adam. That's coming to an end. That history is coming to an end. We're entering a new history, the history of Jesus Christ. We're entering his book, his history, and his creation. Now, how... Can God possibly say, how can Jesus possibly say that all the righteous blood going all the way back to Abel is coming on this generation of Israel? How is that fair? Well, you have to remember that in crucifying Jesus, the God-man, who was Emmanuel, God with us, Israel was summing up and in a perverted way perfecting all the shedding of righteous blood which the deaths of all the previous martyrs pictured and pointed to. All of those deaths were attempts to kill God, which, of course, we cannot do. But when rebellious man cannot kill God, he does the next best thing. He kills those who remind him of God. He kills those who speak the words of God. He kills those who reflect the character of God, like Abel. (coughs) Excuse me. So you see, crucifying Jesus, the God-man, was not only the wickedest act of human history, it was the wickedest act possible. It was the wickedest act conceivable because it was the closest fallen man could ever come to killing God himself. And all of that was part of the mysterious plan of God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter says this in a prayer to God. He says, truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, every one of them, Herod, Pontius Pilate, people of Israel, the Gentiles, they're all acting for their own good and sufficient purposes. They're all making their own decisions For their own reasons. And yet they're all doing exactly what God has determined before to be done. And why would God determine that such a thing would be done? That is the question. We understand what fallen man is doing. We get that. What is God doing? And why? Just this. God is drawing all the sin of the world onto Israel. So that through Israel, he can draw the sin of the world onto his son. So that through the death and resurrection of his son, God can kill sin, God can kill death, God can kill Satan who wields sin and death, and he can bury them forever. For that is what is necessary to begin a new book of generations, to have a new beginning, to have a new Adam, to have a new human race, and to have a new creation. But that's not the extent of the wonder. Because when you think about it, God could have made a new Adam and a new heavens and a new earth far more easily, with far less cost, by simply scrapping the old and making a new from scratch. Would have been much simpler, much quicker. Why didn't he? That's the question. There's only one reason for God so loved the world. That's why. That's the only reason just as God did not create a new Adam from scratch, but had His Son enter into our humanity and take on our humanity and in that way save us, not just start over. Even so, God did not create a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation from scratch. Rather, He entered into our fallen world. So God is causing the new creation the new heavens and the new earth, to break into our fallenness, to break into this fallen world, so that through Jesus, God makes a new humanity and a new creation by saving and resurrecting and transforming the old. All for one reason and for one reason only. For God so loved the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.